All right. Good evening. How's everyone doing? Very good. All right. Well, Merry Christmas. Tonight, hey, yeah, Happy New Year. Now, tonight we are going through, everybody online is like, what, what? Um, tonight we are stepping out of the Old Testament. If you were there with us Sunday morning, we actually stepped in between the Testaments and walked through um, that a little bit. And tonight we're going to hop in to the New Testament. And the New Testament obviously begins um, with John the Baptist, the birth of Christ. And so we're going to walk through um, that tonight. Before we get started, um, we, we did mention last week that I would answer just a just a couple or make a couple um, comments um, on Noah. Uh, before I do that, um, again, um, Tom does an amazing, amazing ministry and his team is amazing here. Um, don't underestimate the power of those yes tables and the power of the team. I'm we talk a lot about um, um, Friend Day and the importance of bringing the community. But to be honest, the most important day is not Friend Day. It's the day after Friend Day. And it's the week after Friend Day as these people, um, this team is calling. So I, I really encourage you, grab one of these cards. Um, they will walk you through it. Um, and, and Tom, it's been fun being at Cornerstone with Tom. Um, as many of you know, I, I was at Cornerstone um, a while ago, 15 years ago as the youth pastor here. Tom was the worship pastor here. I don't know if uh, you guys knew that. Um, and I remember one, one of the biggest days, it was a sad day, obviously, but one of the biggest days in the history of the world for both me and Tom happened happened on the same time. We were both at a staff retreat, and staff retreats at Cornerstone are always fun. And so we were at, at, up in Greer, and all of a sudden, it's it's like 6 in the morning, so I, I'm dead asleep. Tom's wide awake drinking coffee. And in, or, and, and all of a sudden I just hear some commotion and then go down and, and it was the other youth pastor who's goofing off. And then it, it starts to get a little later. It's like eight or nine or whatever. Now everybody's up and the youth ministry's still sleeping sound. And so we're in there and all of a sudden one of the ladies runs in and just starts yelling, a plane hit the building, a plane hit the building, a plane hit the building. And we're like, what? And we wake up, and of course, we don't understand the significance of it, and so we're, we're just like, and my immediate reaction, and I remember to this day, and, and, and me and my friend talk about this, my immediate reaction was, go tell Tom! And that's what I said, and it was uh, 9-11 that day, but I, I just remember Tom was always the guy that, that we wanted to send people to. We wanted um, uh, people to, to see because Tom's got a heart of gold. And, and Tom is the exact person we want to be heading up um, this uh, counseling ministry. So again, I encourage you to do that. Um, as far as the, the movie Noah, um, if you have not seen Noah now, too bad. I'm going to bust the plot for you. Um, there have been a lot of questions on it. Last week I said I, I saw it and, um, and I, I actually said it was a good movie. For movie's sake, it was well directed, well acted, um, a lot of money was um, poured into it, great effects and all that kind of stuff. Was it biblically accurate? Um, no, not not, even, not really even close. They got Noah right and a couple other things, but uh, it was pretty far off. Um, I did I did ask that you guys would go and see it, and, and and as you talk to your friends about Noah, don't get into that Christian bubble where you're just criticizing Hollywood, criticizing Hollywood, but actually use it as a an opportunity um, to ma- to maybe open some conversation. So a couple of the the comments I would have about Noah. Um, number one, Noah's heart. Um, the Bible at 
at no time depicts Noah's heart as being um, confused and maybe angry towards mankind. Um, the Bible um, talks about Noah was a, a righteous man. Um, so the way they depicted Noah was quite a bit different, especially the last half of the movie, how they depicted Noah. Um, there were eight people that entered the ark, not six and two promised um, twins in the future. Um, the rock people did not exist. Um, so when I saw that, I was like, wow, that's a never-ending story. Um, same type of thing. And, um, and the whole idea that the rock people were the demons that fell to the earth, um, which I don't know if he was trying to connect them with the Nephilim of Genesis 6 or whatever, but how, the, how, um, how they felt it, it's totally different than um, how the Bible talks about the demons falling to earth. And they definitely didn't rally together and help um, form a chain to keep people off the ark and, and stuff like that. Um, Methuselah, um, Noah's grandfather, um, the oldest man in the history or the written history of the world, by the way, a fun little, um, um, riddle you can tell your, your friends is the oldest man in the history of the world died before his father. How's that possible? And just leave it at that and see if people can figure that out. Um, so Methuselah actually died right before the flood. He, the flood did not kill him. Noah's dad, Lamech actually died five years before the flood, not when Noah was a young child. Okay. Tubal-Cain, whether he was a peer of Noah, the Bible's silent on that. If you look at both timelines of Tubal-Cain and Noah, it's possible they were around at the same time. Um, but there's no indication that he, he fought and pirated the, the ark. Um, as far as the advanced technology, to be honest, that is actually possible. There are people that think that um, pre-flood civilization actually built up pretty pretty quick. I doubt it was quite as advanced as what the movie showed, but there was definitely some advancement. Obviously, the flood would have brought everybody back to um, ground zero. The ark um, looked fairly okay. The flood, the water looked good. Um, let's see. Um, as far as Methuselah being a witch doctor, that, that's definitely um, not biblical. Um, so, but, but again, it, it, it's Hollywood. Um, the fact that an atheist went out and set out to um, write a movie um, entitled Noah, hey, maybe that's a little baby step. At least it opens up um, questions. As Noah's reminiscing and as they're talking about the creation, they did say six days, but as you looked at the way they did it, it, it sort of followed the evolutionary um, um, type vibe. So, so again, I would go out and see it. it. It's great to see if you have children, bring them to it. Don't tell them anything and see if, see, see if they can figure out some of the things. It's great to expose, um, on them to that. So, all right. So let's head into the New Testament. Um, if you have your Bibles turned to, we're actually going to start in Mark. We're going to go chronologically, um, through this piece. So go to Mark. And this last Sunday, or this, yeah, this last Sunday out in the beautiful tent, um, during second service, we walked through the in-between times. Now, we're not going to go through all that tonight, but I will give you just a brief synopsis because it helps. The civilization that existed 400 years before Christ, when Malachi walked the earth, was radically different than the civilization that Jesus walked into. Okay? And, and it, it, it's a huge gap. Okay. Yes, there were other times in the Bible where there were a 400 year gap, but really not much changed. This is like saying, um, the difference between a first and a third grader, not so much. The difference between a seventh and a ninth grader, puberty and everything, there's a big difference. Okay. So there is a huge difference in here when, um, we last left the scene, when God last spoke his words through the prophet Malachi, Persia was still in charge. So the Persian empire was still in charge. Um, characters like the Pharisees, Sadducees, the group called the Sanhedrin, the Essenes, um, 
synagogue. None, none of those things were in play at that time. Um, the Herodians weren't in play. Um, the language was not Greek. Rome was still not Rome. And so a lot of difference. So in that 400 years, we go from Persia, and it actually does follow Daniel 2, goes from Persia to Greece. Greece is now the world empire. Alexander the Great storms the world. Alexander the Great is the very definition of great. Um, he, he was a great military mind. He was a great mind. When you look in your um, philosophical history, you'll, you'll, you'll see the Socrates, the Plato, you'll, you'll see the Aristotle, and you will see Alexander. He was a student. And so he was very wise, very smart, great military leader, um, accomplished a lot, took over the world. The way Greece took over the world is a little different than empires in the past. They took over the world, yes, militarily, but they encultured the world. So as they took over these territories, people started speaking Greek. They started looking at the Greek philosophy. They started um, looking at the Greek academies and the Greek educational systems and all that kind of stuff. And so during this time, Palestine became Hellenized. Okay, So everybody spoke Greek. That was not the case in the Old Testament. During this during this time span, a lot of the Jews were moved down into Alexandria, Egypt, which is a, a, a mecca of education. And this is where the Bible was first translated into Greek. Okay, So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Bible, and that happened during this intertestament time. After Alexander the Great died, um, his kingdom was split between four generals. Two of them we don't really care about, but two of them that we do care about um, was a group called the Seleucids up north and the group called the Ptolemies on the south. Okay, And Jerusalem was right in the middle. So for the first part, um, the Jewish people were under the rule of the Greek Ptolemies. Okay, and that was fairly okay. Everything was going okay. And then all of a sudden the Seleucids took over. Now under the Ptolemies, the, the, the Jewish people totally fell for everything Greece except for one thing. Their religion. They did not go after the Greek gods or anything like that. They loved the education. They loved the, the language and all the different trappings. They would not go after the religion. When the Seleucids came down, and now Jerusalem was under that imp- that piece of the Greek empire, they forced their religion. This caused a revolt. For those of you who have Catholic backgrounds, you, you would have heard of the Maccabean revolt. This happened during the, this time span where, where um, a, a, a Jewish priest took his stand and refused to worship the gods of, of Greece. And... Um, him, and then as he died through his sons, um, started this Maccabean revolt, and it actually worked. And for a short period of time, Jerusalem was under its own power. They were still under the umbrella of Greece, but they sort of, but they, they sort of had their own autonomy there. And then just some inner squabblings during that middle piece, one of the groups decided to go and ask a foreign um, government if they would mediate the situation. Unfortunately for them, that foreign government was Rome, who was now taking over the world. And Rome mediated the situation by taking over the situation. So from that point on, Rome now took over the world. And now we enter the time of Jesus. Rome has been in power uh, um, for, for over half a century. Okay, Rome, like Greece, would take over the world. Greece would enculture them... Rome, instead of making them Romans, Rome also liked the Greek culture. 
Rome also liked the Greek gods. They changed their names, but they liked the Greek gods. They liked the education. They liked the, the, the democracy. They liked the form of government. All that was great. Rome only cared about two things. Pay your taxes and don't riot. Pay your taxes and don't riot. If you do that, everything's golden. Okay? During this time, the Jewish, the Jewish group, the Jews had certain religious leaders start to rise up. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were the two major ones that would rise up. The Essenes were a third, but the Essenes were like a monk, basically. They sort of kept off to themselves. Um, but the Sadducees and the Pharisees, very much like today's government, we got the, the conservatives and the liberals. Politically, the Sadducees were very liberal. The Pharisees were conservative, Theologically and religiously, it was the exact opposite. The Pharisees were a little more liberal. They believed in an afterlife. They believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in heaven, didn't believe in a resurrection. Um, As far as their workings with Rome, the Sadducees were a minority in the Sanhedrin, but they were the upper class. The Pharisees were a great majority within the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin is just basically like the Congress. you got the the, the, the two sides. The Pharisees were the majority, but they were more the blue-collar middle class. Okay? So as we look at these two groups, there's another group called the Herodians. As Rome took over, they appointed a guy named uh, Antipater and then his son Herod, which we'll talk about today. And they were sort of the governor, not sort of, they were the governing voice of the region. One other character is the procurator. That's Pontius Pilate. He was Rome's voice into the situation. So Herod was the government representing the Jews to Rome. Um, Pilate was the Roman voice into the situation. And then the Jewish people had their, their representation basically by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So that enters us into the world that Jesus goes into. Totally, totally Different, But the reason why you need to understand the difference between these groups is because when we see Jesus, especially the last week, when we see Jesus arguing with certain groups, you'll notice that he's arguing with the Pharisees and a lot of it's over practice. The Pharisees really were legalistic and they cared about the practice. Not only do you obey the word, but how do you obey the word? Okay, And so Jesus would argue with the Pharisees on that stuff. He would argue with the Sadducees on totally different things things. Okay. So let's go ahead and let's look at Mark. We're only going to be in Mark for half a verse or a full verse. It says in the beginning or the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. There are four gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all written to a different audience. Matthew's written to a, basically a Jewish audience. Uh, Mark is basically written to more of a Roman Gentile audience, and Luke is written to more of a Greek audience. John was written much later, and that was written to Christians all over the world. Okay, The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels. Okay, So if you've ever heard that term, that's, that's what it is. Okay, So in the beginning of the good news, so the reason why we want to read this verse is good news literally means gospel. That's what gospel means, good news. Okay, so each one of these writers wrote a biography about Jesus, about the good news, aimed at different crowds, so they had little different bents on it. They didn't, they they never conflict, but they come at different angles. 
Now turn over to Luke, Luke chapter 1. By the way, Mark wrote to the Romans. Mark was, um, most theologians believe that Mark was basically Peter's voice. So if Peter was to write a biography, it, it was Mark. Mark got m- most of his information via Peter, most theologians believe. Okay, so Luke. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the world. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke is a historian. And Luke is a historian of first rank. Um, even, even in modern history, most honest scholars will give Luke a thumbs up as far as being a historian. Luke is also the author of the book of Acts. Luke and Acts basically are, are two sides of the same. Okay, And so Luke um, wrote, wrote a story... In carefully investigating. So as we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then obviously John, a lot of what they wrote were first-hand accounts. A lot of what they wrote were interviews and, and testimonies of those who had the first-hand accounts. I, like Mark would have wrote with Peter. These were written about 20 years after Jesus rose, somewhere in the 50s AD. Does that make it um, any less reliable? Absolutely not. Most biographies are not written while the person's alive. They're written after the fact. Um, as we study, um, as we study the gospels, they are very accurate. Um, they stand up extremely strong. In fact, the earliest indication that they were written only 20 years after the fact gives us great confidence that there's no way legend or myth could have been um, added into the story because those who were reading it were witnesses of this. So obviously you couldn't have a different tale of how Jesus rose or Jesus miraculously busted the cross in half and what, that wouldn't fly. Obviously if someone even now wrote a book about Ronald Reagan and said that in, in, in 1975 he got on an aircraft carrier and he flew an F, flew an F1 and he shot down a MIG, we're all gonna go, huh? That doesn't make sense. It could, Okay, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four Gospels, um, good news. Now let's get into um, the story. Let's go to John, and before we get to Jesus' birth, we've got to understand Jesus' deity. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Who's the word, by the way? Jesus. Where does it, where does it say he was born? Does it? He, he, he existed when? Eternity past. So he's always existed. Okay? Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So he's the creator. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is not the Apostle John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. That light is Jesus. So that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was not made, or, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is closest relationship with the father has made him known. So the first thing we need to understand about, about Jesus and about the birth story is the birth story is God, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Jesus didn't first start to exist in the New Testament. Okay? Jesus is God. He's been there since the beginning. And from Genesis 3, his redemptive plan was put into motion. We talked about that last week, the thread that's gone through time. Let's go back to Luke and we'll start reading through this verse story. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the same time of Herod, king of Judea, There was a priest named Zechariah. Now, Herod, this is Herod the Great. There was a great priest named, or there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. So both of them were part of the um, Levitic line of Aaron. So they're both part of that priestly line. What it means by the priestly division is there were so many priests in the line of, of Aaron at that time, they actually had to divide them up in divisions. Okay, so that's what it's talking about there. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the law of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. What that means, they were both righteous in the sight of God. Many of the religious leaders were righteous in the sight of man only, but God saw underneath. God saw the heart. God is saying here that these people were righteous on the inside. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they both were very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God... He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time, when the time of, for burning of incense came, all assembled worshipers were praying outside. So this is a big deal. Yes, he was a priest, but because there were so many priests, so many different divisions, about a thousand in each division, about 18,000 priests, um, in, in this area, 
It was a once in a lifetime opportunity to be able to go in on this one day and be able to to light the incense and, and lift up prayers um, for the community. Okay, and so he had the opportunity to do that. So this is a once in a lifetime shot. So not only were all the worshipers coming out, but you could imagine his family was there. Everybody, this was this was a, a big moment. As he was in there, then an not the angel, and then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, "By the way." Anytime a human runs into an angel, they're always startled and gripped with fear throughout. And so if you ever meet an angel, probably you're going to be planking on the ground. You're going to be face down. When Zachariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. They always say that too. Zachariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other firmament drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. So most likely he took the Nazarite vow. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So again, we talked on Sunday morning last time I spoke about what it meant to be a herald, what it meant to be an evangelist. And, and the heralds were those guys that ran forward and all, and just yelled out, prepare the way for the King. He's coming. He's gone. That was John. He was a herald. And by the way, The minute the angel started speaking, that stopped the 400 years of silence. This was God's first um, speech into um, the New Testament. So here we have Zechariah. He's in there. He's He's lighting incense. Obviously, he's praying. Everybody on the outside is praying. And the angel just says, hey, we heard your prayer. You're about to have a child. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Sounds familiar, huh? You think these guys would read Genesis? <laughs> Could tell you I would do the same thing though. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. Now we know who the angel is. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until this day happens. Now Elizabeth's prayer was answered. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Imagine that scene. Everybody's out outside, they're praying, and they're done praying, and now they're waiting. They're waiting for the priest to come out and pronounce God's blessing upon him. And the smoke of the incense would rise, symbolizing their prayers reaching heaven. 
And so the priest would always come out and he would recite numbers 6, 22 through 27, um, somewhere around there. And, and he would recite that out to them. And then they, they would, they would be blessed. So they're waiting for this blessing. And then all of a sudden, guy comes out and he's like, can't speak. Imagine that. Imagine you're the family. Imagine the wife. Oh, it's finally here. He's so old. He finally gets to do this. And he comes out first. He's not coming out. And then he finally comes out. And the wife, I guarantee Elizabeth saw it in his face. Uh Uh-oh, something's wrong. And he's just... I'm not sure sign language it was around back then. I didn't have whiteboards. And I'm sure it just looked weird. As he's trying to pronounce this blessing and what happened. It's amazing how God works. John the Baptist, by the way, if you ever want to find a character that's just amazing in the Bible, a character to emulate, to follow, this is the guy. Jesus, God himself, said that John the Baptist, I believe it's Matthew eleven eleven. John the Baptist is the greatest human ever to walk the earth. The greatest human ever to be born of a woman. That's John the Baptist. John the Baptist, whose birth was announced by an angel. How amazing is this guy? And what made him even more amazing is the fact that he understood that he must become less and Jesus must become greater. When the time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant And for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Being barren, being able not to have children was a huge disgrace um, in ancient culture. And it was definitely a huge disgrace in um, Jewish culture. Verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy... Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. By the way, um, as you look in both, there's two genealogies of Jesus, one in uh, Matthew, one in Luke. Um, They both trace um, Jesus back um, to David. One of them actually takes him all the way back um, to Adam. As you look at the genealogies, people will notice that the names are different. They go, oh, the Bible's got an error. No, one's a genealogy of Mary's line. One's a genealogy of Joseph's line. The reason why they're two different genealogies, Luke gives us Mary's line. Because Luke is written to Greeks, and Greeks would care more about the legal standing of the lineage. And the legal stand, or I mean, I'm sorry, the blood standing of the lineage, and that would go through Mary. The Matthew was written to Jews. They don't care about women. They're looking more for the legal standing. And so there's two different um, lines there. Verse 28. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. 
You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, no, you're not. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit. Okay, it was a good question by Mary. The Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who is said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. That's a good verse to underline. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. That's another good verse to underline. We go on to see that Mary ends up um, visiting Elizabeth. We see the birth of John the Baptist. We see Zachariah's song as we continue to move forward. We get into the birth of Jesus. Now, the birth of Jesus, we know. We, we've, we've heard about it. We, we've seen it. Um, the Peanuts told us about that story. Um, since we were kids, we've seen it on our TV stations. We've seen it on the top of our TVs in the Nativity. We've heard about it. Every Christmas throughout the, the world, pastors talk about the birth of Christ. So we're not going to spend too much time on that. But I do want to show you a little video. Because um, this video will help, help us sort of get a, a, an idea of... What things might have been added to the story? Um, maybe it's from our, our culture, and maybe what things are actually in the Bible. So go ahead and hit that video, and then we'll continue on with this. One December night, over 2,000 years ago, a shining star illuminated a gathering of kings, shepherds, angels, and animals round a baby in a stable was the nativity, and it marked the end of a journey that began on a donkey's back. Whoa, hold up there, James. I beg your pardon? Your nativity. That's not exactly how it happened. Here, look, let's start with that donkey. Neither of the gospel stories mentions Mary traveling by donkey. And given the 60 miles of rough terrain they traveled, it's more likely they used a wagon. <laughs> Minor details. But then the innkeeper informs uh, them there's no room... Again, the Bible doesn't actually mention an innkeeper. And in the Greek, the word inn refers to an upper room in a house, not an actual motel. Oh, blast. Look, wherever it was, there was no room. So, Mary and Joseph were sent to the stable. Uh, no stable. <sighs> not in the Bible either. Now you're catching on. And in those days, most animals were typically kept in a cave. A cave? Yuppers. So it could have been that instead of a stable, the Bible doesn't really say. And the Star of Bethlehem? Duh, that's biblical. Well, we're actually right for once. It's a Christmas miracle. Okay, so now came the shepherds and the three kings. No kings. Three kings is from the song. The Bible says magi, which means wise men. Three wise men? That works. Well, not so fast. While the Bible does mention three gifts, it doesn't specify the number of wise men that brought them. You mean there could have been more? Oh, yeah. A whole posse, even. With a crowd like that, it's a miracle the baby Jesus never cried. What? No crying he makes? That's just a lyric from Away in a Manger, not actual scripture. 
<laughs> well, of course he was crying. You just added a whole crowd of strange men. Eh, yes and no. There may have been many wise men, but they weren't there that night. You see? Okay, that's enough. Except for the blooming star of Bethlehem, you've just dismantled the most inspiring image of Christian tradition. So what's your point? Point? Well, I guess it's this. Even when all of the man-made traditions are stripped away, the eternal truths still remain. Whether they traveled by donkey or wagon, God brought them safely to the birthplace that was prophesied. Whether born in a stable or a cave, God provided shelter in a strange new land. Whether there were three kings, three wise men, or many, God called the elect to bear witness and testimony to the birth of Emmanuel. So whether your manger looks like this, or like this, the one thing that remains unchanged is this. A baby boy, born of a virgin, this day, in the city of David, a savior, which is Christ the Lord. Bless you, sir. I'll never look at the miracle of December 25th the same way again. December 25th? Oh, I almost forgot. Stop that. Music. All right. All right, so as we look at that and you and we look through, um, as we read anywhere in the Bible, we've got to really be careful um, that we don't add culture and add narrative in the Bible that does not exist. And, and a lot of those, and, and to be honest, when I first saw that, there were a couple things that went, huh? And I had to look in the Bible, I'm like, oh yeah, it doesn't mention that. <laughs> um, and so we got to be real careful. But the reason why I showed you that is because oftentimes we, we go through and um, we miss the point. And it happens at every church at Easter. It happens at every church at Christmas. We miss the point. The point of the story is that the word became flesh and dwelt among men. God became human, lived among us, died on a cross, was buried and rose three days later. It is a powerful story. And that's what we need to follow. And, and, and again, so often we, we miss the point. Famous story with the Wright brothers. And we all know the Wright brothers first to fly. And, and they, the story goes that when they finally were able to, to get off the hill at Kitty Hawk and they flew 120 feet or whatever it was, and they cabled back um, and they said, good news, we flew and now we'll be home for Christmas because they, they were going to keep going until they've got it. And the, the note that his family got was, good news, they're going to be home for Christmas. And they'd never even mentioned that the fact that they flew, which was the whole point. And so often we, we, we focus on something that really doesn't matter and totally miss something that is so incredibly powerful. And so as we begin the New Testament, I know we're running short on time tonight, but as we begin this New Testament... I want you to really pay attention. And as we get into this season, in fact, it shouldn't even be a season, but as we get into this um, holiday season, don't lose sight of the story. Don't lose sight of the focal point, which is Jesus. Don't lose sight of the reason why Jesus came to earth. And that was to redeem mankind. 
And so as we go through, the first story that we saw there was John the Baptist. Probably one of the most overlooked characters in the Bible. John the Baptist is so vitally important to understand, and that's why we spent some time on him. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. Angel announced his birth. John the Baptist lived as good a life as you can live. Again, we said Jesus, or the Bible says Jesus called him the greatest human ever to walk the earth. Which is a crazy statement. It's a a true statement, but it's a crazy statement because Jesus said that immediately after John sent disciples to question whether Jesus was even the Messiah. John is a great story of someone who lived a life worthy of the call, who had a heart of gold. But yes, he was a person who doubted, who struggled. But God used him in amazing ways. And 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 again, what a crazy story. And then we get to the birth of Jesus. And and it's so easy to to see that that story and, and highlight maybe Mary in that situation and totally forget about Joseph. And Joseph's faith in that story. It's so easy to spend so much time, as that video showed, looking at, well, the wise men and and the the shepherds and all that. And all those are great. But again, we got to focus in on the story. And so as we as we continue to to move forward, let's let's look at this. We'll read read chapter two here real quick. In those day, in those, I'm sorry, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census would be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinus was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from heaven to Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, so who was pledged to be married to him. And was expecting a child. Now the Jewish culture was a, a little different one, first you meet with the parents. Once that's settled and you are pledged to be married, you're engaged. But unlike today's culture, where once you're married, you're not supposed to divorce, back here, once you're pledged, you're not allowed to divorce. So it was a very, very serious moment here. So he's pledged um, to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there... The time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in in cloth and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, you can say it, do not be afraid, I bring you good news, I bring you the gospel. That will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those to whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning 
what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all the things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, um, when it was time to circumcise the child, his name he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. It's amazing that um, both the birth and the death of Christ were, were announced to people that didn't matter. In that culture, shepherds did not matter. Shepherds were the lowest of low. And we talked about that early on with past shepherds. Um, Jesus' death was announced to um, women who also didn't matter in that culture. Um, but they mattered to God. They mattered to God. And I love the story that, that instead of announcing it to a king or to, to anybody, the angel appears to shepherds. It's a really cool story as as it starts to unfold as as the word becomes flesh and lives amongst us now most historians would say that the birth happened somewhere between 4 and 6 BC we don't know when Jesus died could have been somewhere 30 33 who knows could have been earlier um, but Jesus lived approximately that span um couple other things. The birth of Jesus was prophesied throughout the Old Testament. The odds of someone actually completing and fulfilling these prophecies is absolutely astronomical. And I know a lot of you have seen these studies. There are over 400 prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. Over 400 prophecies concerning Christ. Mathematicians once set out to see what the odds would be. The odds of Jesus, or um, the odds of any person fulfilling just eight of these prophecies are 10 with, with 17 zeros. Is that correct? 10 with 17? 10 to the 17th power? Yeah. So 10 with 17 zeros behind it. That's a, that's a pretty ridiculous number. In fact, I'll bet you if I had everybody stand up and I started flipping a coin, you'd probably all be sitting down. And I said, sit down when it's tails. You'd probably all be sitting down within seven flips. These numbers are astounding. 48 prophecies fulfilled by any human is 10 to 157 zeros. 10 with 157 zeros. And that's just 48. As we look at the story and as we go on over the next couple months, we're going to see so many things that pinpoint that not only is Jesus human and he was fully human, but he is God. The evidence is so powerful that Jesus is God. His birth was supernatural. And it's powerful. And the fact that he's fulfilling prophecies that didn't even... Some things didn't even exist at the time they were prophesied. As it's talking about how he'll be pierced. The crucifixion didn't even exist back then. And, and, and so many of these prophecies that were written about 700 years before, before his birth, um, 1,500 years before his birth, how any human could go and do that. And so as we go through this, and again, I know we're running out of time tonight, we're going to look at, at some of these prophecies, and when they come up, we'll point them out. We're going to spend a lot of time um, on the last week of Jesus, 
The last week of Jesus is incredibly important. As you, as you look at all four of the Gospels, specifically John, a great preponderance of time is spent in the last five days of Christ because it's critically important. Um, we are going to spend some time um, looking at the ministry of Jesus following um, the thread um, as he starts his ministry um, from his baptism. We're going to look at the temptation of Jesus, and then we'll just follow his ministry as it goes down from Galilee and eventually ends up in um, Jerusalem. But we're really going to spend some time in the last week um, on Palm Sunday all the way and, and seeing what happens, what, what could change a culture to say hallelujah and in five days say crucify. And we're going to see all these players come into play. We're going to see Pilate. We're going to see um, um, the Sadducees. We're going to see the Pharisees. We're going to see his disciples, how they reacted. We're actually going to introduce a, a group called the Zealots, which Barabbas was most likely a part of. And we're going to see Pilate. And we're going to see Herod. And, and it's fun how all of them come into this incredible passion play. And at one moment in history, there stands... A significant man, a powerful man named Pilate, and he asked the question that still rings today. What am I to do with this man that you call Jesus? What am I to do with this man that you call Jesus? And that's still a question that we have to answer today. What are we going to do with this man called Jesus? And you'll see a bunch of different answers. You'll see Herod's answer. You'll see the Jews answer, the Jewish people. You'll see the Jewish leaders answer. You'll see his disciples answer from silence. You'll see Barabbas' answer. It's a powerful play. And so I definitely want to encourage you to keep coming on Tuesday nights, um, especially as we get towards that last week. So um, let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Um, I'm sorry, we're running out of time. So I will be up front for questions. Um, before we go, I've been asked, um, we've got a huge moment in, in our church. And as you can see, these um, um, these walls continue to be built. And, and we're at a hinge point, And it's just a powerful moment. And any time you're at a hinge point in your life, um, it always... Um, it's always important to bring that before God. So um, Lynn even asked me um, tonight as he's walking out, he's like, hey, could you, could you get the people um, at the mine um, to just lift, lift this um, building project, lift this church up in prayer? So I'm going to ask everybody, stand up, grab, grab a hand of the person next to you. You can stretch across the aisles if you want. All you loners got to move now. All right, here we go. <laughs> Let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you so much. First of all, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that the word became flesh. We thank you that you loved us and gave us your son. We thank you that you promised us a Messiah. We thank you that even though we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you for the love of Jesus. We thank you that we have the opportunity to have a relationship, not religion, but a relationship with the creator of the universe. We thank you that like the shepherds, you see each and every one of us for who we are. You meet us where we're at, no matter what our life is like, no matter what our baggage is like. We thank you that you love us from the inside out. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this church. We thank you um, for the opportunity um, to be a light in the community of Chandler, to be a light in the community of Santan Valley. We thank you that um, we have the opportunity to be your lampstand, to hold up the light, 
Heavenly Father, I pray that during this time, that, or during any time, we never forsake you. We never leave you behind, but you're always the forefront. You're the forefront of every message we give, every program we have. You're the forefront of our talks and our walks, and, and you're the forefront of our building campaign. And Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have blessed us with the opportunity to expand the reach that Cornerstone has, to expand the reach that we have in this community, to be able to have more stories coming out of these purple chairs, stories about you, stories about healing. Heavenly Father, I just pray for Lynn. I pray for the leadership of this church. I pray that you give them wisdom, the wisdom that Solomon asked for. Give them the wisdom to see things, not the way they see it, but the way you see it. Give us all the wisdom to see things the way you see it. Give us the courage to take a stand, to sacrifice, to build, to reach out. Heavenly Father, I I pray that we never build our own kingdoms, but we build yours. And we thank you for the opportunity to continually build yours. Thank you for the reach that we have in Kenya and in India down in Mexico and in Jamaica and throughout the state, continue to give us that fervor to reach out for the, the dying, to reach out for those who don't know you. Make it a burden. And Heavenly Father, we lift up our children. We lift up our youth. We pray that um, through this, it gives them the opportunity to be able to have a place that they call their own, to be able to have a place where they can reach out. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We pray that you keep Satan far away, that you take away all distractions, that you take away all barriers, that you take away all excuses, and you take away all doubt. And you lay upon each and every one of our hearts exactly what we are to do. Heavenly Father, we close this prayer and we pray for the next couple weeks. And as Easter comes, I pray that Jesus is the story. I pray that those guests that sit in these chairs, both here and in Santan Valley, will hear that loud and clear. That Jesus is the story. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that we can powerfully proclaim the gospel that is Jesus is Lord. He came to earth and he died on a cross. He was buried and he was risen three days later. And that if we would just turn our hearts to him and confess with our mouth, we will be saved. I pray that that's the message of Easter. I pray that that's the message of Friend Day. And I pray that's the message of every day. We love you and we praise you. And we give this all to you. In your precious name, amen. Thank you so much. See you Sunday, Tuesday, and I'll be up here for questions.